Hey everyone, before we get started, just a quick heads up that registration is now open for the American Craft Spirits Association's annual distillers convention and vendor trade show. We hope you'll join us in Louisville, Kentucky this December 4th through 6th to network, learn, and toast the craft spirits industry. To sign up and take advantage of early bird pricing, head to AmericanCraftSpirits.org now. Thanks. The pandemic, you know, has helped that sort of um, education process. I'm on Zoom. I have another one today. I'm on them every day, almost virtual tastings for people. They want to learn about what we're doing. And I've always felt that, you know, knowledge is power and that's just great for everybody. You know, responsible, uh, mindful drinking occasions is where brands like ours are going to fit in. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, Dedicated to Craft. Our guest today is Rhonda Coleman, the founder of Boston Harbor Distillery. In 1984, Rhonda co-founded the Boston Beer Company, and she brought her passion for craft from the beer world to distilled spirits in 2012. The distillery makes numerous whiskey varieties along with small batch gin, rum, liqueurs, and more. In March, Rhonda joined Editor-in-Chief Jeff Cialetti via Zoom to chat about the origins of her distillery, the growth of American single malt whiskey, and lessons learned from a career dedicated to craft beverages. Thanks for having me here, actually, to talk about whiskey. It's great. I love to talk about whiskey all day long, all night long. Um, but, you know, my background was in craft beer, and I really learned a lot about um, craft in the beer business. And I, I learned that craft really is an ingredient story. And I, I think that's the backbone of this whole, uh, and, and why I chose to make malt whiskey here in Boston and in America. And, you know, I kind of took a page out of what we did with craft beer. I uh, helped Jim Cook start Sam Adams Boston Beer Company in, in 1984, 83, 84. And uh, really what was different was what was inside that bottle. You know, when we started here in Boston, it was a uh, very yellow, pale, bland landscape of yellow fizzy beers. The only thing really dif- differentiating them were, were the labels. And they're corn-based. And corn is lighter, sweeter. Um, it's a filler. It's, it, it's an adjunct. You don't doesn't digest well, necessarily. Um, so craft beer, frankly, it's been an anti-corn sentiment. And, and I just, that was ingrained in me because when we, particularly when we first started the company, uh, that's all we had to talk about was what was in the bottle. It's like being a chef, like you talk about where the ingredients came from and what they are and how you brought these flavors together. And so I guess it was 20 years later or 25 or I've lost track, but in 2012 um, or 2011, I, I started to look at what a white space might be here in 
my beloved city of Boston that kicks your ass every day, but I still love it. Um, and I realized that people weren't really focusing on whiskey. There really wasn't any whiskey production going on in this area. And ever since I was a little girl, I was drinking my father's whiskey and ginger, was rye, you know, back in those days, it was BO. BO was like top shelf, you know, Seagram 7, Canadian Club, BO. And I just loved it. I loved it. And when Jim asked me to help him start a beer company in 1983, I'm like, you know what, Jim, I don't drink beer. <laughs> I drink whiskey. And he said, oh, he promised that he'd make something that I would like. And of course he did. And, and so then, you know, all these 15 plus years of, of being at the forefront of craft, it really, I love to talk to people about the ingredients and educate them on what makes this special beer different. And so I brought all that experience with me and decided to start a whiskey distillery here in Boston. Um, and I couldn't bring myself to use corn, even though bourbon, of course, by law has to be made with a majority of corn. And I, what I love about bourbon is that it's uniquely American and that's really cool. But after all these years of sort of anti-corn, um, if you will, I just thought I need to do something different and I can't compete with Kentucky, I can't compete with Tennessee, but I started looking at what were the world's great whiskeys? What was considered amongst the most awarded best-selling whiskeys in the world? And they're malt. Um, and single malts at the time, and they still are, you know, from Scotland and now, Je you know, Japanese single malts have come up and there's other regions of the world. Pretty exciting. Um, but there's no reason why Americans can't have the gold standard. And, you know, again, I, I've seen this, I've seen this before, and it parallels so much of craft beer and what we were able to accomplish at Sam Adams. So the first whiskey we ever made here at this distillery was Putnam. And I'm in this beautiful old, you've been here, Jeff, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. so I, I was there three years ago, I believe, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's really grand. I, this, is, this is the distillery here. And this whole 18 acre parcel has been the center of entrepreneurial commerce since the mid 1800s. And uh, it was started by this guy, Silas Putnam, who automated the manufacture of the hut forged horseshoe nail and supplied horseshoe nails to both sides of the Civil War because they had government contracts right here out of Boston. So um, at the time, I did not, at the time I decided to start uh, making whiskey in Boston, I did not have a brand idea. In fact, I was going to make custom spirits. I was gonna make whiskey for restaurant groups and aficionados and enthusiasts and clubs and all those people that want their own private barrel um, because I didn't have a brand idea. And then one night, you know, this was a falling down dilapidated junk collector's warehouse when we finally got to it and there were no utilities in the building or anything, my husband's a builder, so that helped a lot. And he likes wood, so that's good. We had a lot of wood in here now. But um, I, I just felt that I wanted to prove that Americans can make world-class whiskey as well. No offense to bourbon, um, but it's just, again, it goes back to the ingredient story. And I couldn't compete with the however many 10 million barrels of bourbon 
that are made in you know Tennessee and in Kentucky every year. So it all came together, and I was in here painting one night and realized, well, you know, how do you get horses in Boston together? There's all this imagery of horses and whiskey, and I just I love that. It, I just loved it all, and I thought that's kind of hard to do. Here in Boston, there's not a lot of horses around here. Horses' assets, maybe, but not a lot of horses. And then it came to me, well, why don't I call it Putnam after the man who built my distillery? And, oh, wait, you know, he, I'm going to get you another label because you can see it a little better. But, um, you know, this, these were his logos from the 1800s. And uh, this was the Putnam Nail Factory. So I just took his logos. This happens to be Silas's uncle, General Israel Putnam, the Revolutionary War hero, who was born uh, right up the road in, in uh, Danvers, Mass. And I, I grew up in Lynn and Peabody, and Danvers is like in between both of them. So we used to go there for ice cream and penny candy when I was a little girl. It's called Putnam Pantry. So I thought, Putnam, you know, it's a big name around here. And in the beer business, I always thought that guys' names had, you know, mattered to people. You've got Sam Adams, and you've got Miller, and you've got Coors, and um, Heineken, for example. So I, that was when I decided to call it Putnam, and that is why this imagery is here. So this is really a testament. All of my brands were named for the entrepreneurs or inspired by the entrepreneurs that had commerce here in this building since the mid-1800s. So the first person, so I'm, I keep talking, but you haven't even asked me one thing. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Actually, I was going to ask you because, you know, you say one of the things you didn't want to compete necessarily with the, with the bourbons in Kentucky and everything like that. But now that American single malt is kind of becoming a category unto itself. How do you um, distinguish yourself? Like, what are the challenges of, you know, being a, a brand amongst, you know, a growing number of American malt whiskeys? Well, it, it goes to a couple of things. It always has to start with the quality, no matter what. And taste is, you know, is in the eye of the beholder, depending on what taste they like. And, you know, I call it New England style. And it, it was, when I started this, I, I have to back up a little bit because a, a couple of secret weapons that I have, or I had, the first hire I made for the distillery was Dr. James Swan. And I found Swan uh, just researching you know, and he's the guy that was behind Kavalon from Taiwan, the most awarded whiskey in the world. And then, you know, Springbank and John Paul and Amrut and just, so I called Swan and I asked if he could help me start a whiskey distillery in Boston. And he's, if, I'm sure you may know of him, but he's a Scot he was a Scottish guy. He fell down the stairs a few years ago and, and died at his home in Scotland. But at, when he was a little boy growing up in Scotland, he worked for, well, not a little boy, but a young man. He worked for Arthur Anderson, which is an accounting firm. And they needed to go figure out how do you account for all those barrels aging all over Scotland in the basements and the 
of the distilleries. So there Jim went to figure out all what he needed to do to understand the value in those barrels. And hence he had to learn everything about the maturation process. So anyway, he became the world's best uh, known maturation expert for whiskey. So when I called him, he said, oh, you know, young lady, if you want to learn about whiskey, you know, meet me in, I thought he was going to say Scotland, but he said, no, meet me in Taiwan. Shit, Taiwan, okay, and I did. I was the last one on that Delta 88 before they, they, they uh, stopped flying them. There were only like 12 people on this entire brand new plane. And, I, that, and that's how I got to Taiwan. But anyway, that, I digress. So I learned a lot about whiskey making um, from Swan. And of course, he wanted, you know, I was, he introduced me to Richard Forsyth. I mean, the beautiful Scottish stills. And I was in love. Um, they were expensive. And I was starting this thing from scratch, you know, and uh, I almost pulled the trigger on it, on buying Scottish stills. And then I thought, what the hell would I do that for? I'm making American whiskey here in Boston and I want to use American equipment. So I ended up with a Vendome. Um, it was the Econo model and Swan said to me, you're not going to get good whiskey out of that still. Well, the still, by the way, I digress a little bit because it's all part of the story and it's real. It's rich. So Vendome puts a registered serial number on every piece of equipment that they make. And this happened to be the 1,776 piece of equipment that they numbered. <laughs> so 1776 ended up right here in, in Boston. So I, I think maybe that's a good omen. But nonetheless, you know, Swan was a consultant and he taught me a lot. Um, about whiskey maturation. And at the same time, I had hired um, my master distiller, uh, John Cushow, and he's worked for a lot of uh, craft distillers in the United States. And uh, he and I seemed to hit it off really well. You should see he and Swan in the same room, Swan with the, you know, the blue Brooks Brothers blazer and the khaki pants. And here's Cushow with the taps and the beard and the, they together really created something pretty wonderful. And the mash bill for Putnam single malt was inspired. Uh, we wanted some locality to inspire it. And of course, there wasn't a lot of grain being grown around here when we started this in 2012. So we ended up, Cushow uh, came up with a mash bill of 100% two row malted barley which is the same stuff that we used in beer. Um, we get our barley from Brees Malt, which uh, grows their grain in what is known as the best growth region of the, in this country is in Northern Wyoming and Southern Idaho. I was actually scheduled to go out there in the pandemic hit last year, but um, so we get our 100% our two row malted barley from, from Brees, uh, but 20% of it is a roasted malt and that's the inspiration for the mash bill came from the walter baker chocolate factory which is just down the road america's oldest chocolatier so when you drink putnam single malt um you get this really unusual uh you know chocolate cherry almost toffee coffee flavor that you don't find uh with most single malts uh, we're not peating it 
like the scotch are and because it's a roasted malt it's not that light that light body that you're getting from other malt whiskeys around the world and so that was you know that was a long way to tell you what the inspiration was for this thing but i i honestly i grapple every day with using the word single malt because single malt is uniquely Scottish. And here we are trying to adopt it, which is kind of cool, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind, you know, having our own brand of malt or American malt or however we do it. So I use single, but I, I, there's no reason why I can't just say malt whiskey on other brands down the road. After a break, more from Jeff's conversation with Rhonda Coleman. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire craft spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. Boston Harbor Distillery released its first bottled and bond whiskey in 2019. As it's often the case for many craft distilleries, Rhonda said it took a little while to get the distillery financed. Still not properly financed, but um, <laughs> some things never change, but we're working on that. Um, and so we didn't really start distilling until 2015. And this was the first whiskey that we made and we laid down and uh, and we, when we decided to bottle it, you know, there's so many conversions and stuff and we just couldn't figure out which we, we just said, let's just do it at a hundred. It was easy conversion, easy math. And, and then of course, bottled and bond happened. And yeah, we, it's very good, I have to say. And as uh, I learned from Swan and my mother always said, age is just a number. You know, if you, if you have the right, ingredients to start with and you distill it and you make your cuts just right and you lay it down in brand new barrels. We're using um, exquisite barrels for our malt whiskey um, that we get from Silver Oak. They're, they're beautiful and they're expensive. Um, and you know, but they're toasted and they're, they're seasoned and they're toasted and they have the char that we want. And um, and then it's temperature, you know, it comes down to a lot of that. And that's what I learned out in Taiwan. So here's Kavalan, the most awarded whiskey in the world at the time. I don't know if it still is. And they needed to get the whiskey out of their barrels within two years, or it would just either lose it to the angel share in evaporation, or it would just turn to oak juice, like get so overly oaked and so a combination of all of those things is really what makes whiskey what it is. And um, 
we have, because of the entrepreneurs that had commerce before us, our barrel room is, our rickhouse is in an old freezer. And uh, the freezer is insulated because it held ice cream. And in the floors, the ceilings and the walls, it's foot thick in cork insulation. So because we had to put utilities in anyway into the building, we ended up putting a temperature zone back there. And when it's cold for six months out of the year around here, we can just crank up the heat back there. And you can, you know, you get that, you end up with that barrel sap, which um, the whiskey just, you know, the wood's porous. So it just goes, flows right into the wood and stays there for a while until it gets cold again. And it's kind of mimics what goes on in Kentucky or Tennessee rickhouses. Oh, right. So that's another little treat that just, it, it just came, it was just here, you know, I didn't seek it out. I, it was just like a surprise and it's like, oh, okay. So age is just a number. It's really a matter of um, how you like your whiskey and uh, proof is kind of just a number too, because it's nice when you just, you get to proof it down the way you want, it, if you want. Um, so where do you see, uh this competing are you competing with bourbons or are you competing with other malt whiskeys um are you competing with other categories i mean like well, who's the uh who's the core drinker um for for malt whiskey the core drinker is the educated palate i think um in, no offense to like a Jamison or something like that. I mean, they're malt whiskeys, but they're different. And this is an upmarket, you know, this is a luxury premium brand. And I, I know many of the other uh, craft distillers here in the United States, at least the bigger ones that started before me that have kind of paved the road that are part of our uh, commission for single malt. Uh, they're making really some really wonderful whiskeys and it's about flavor and and it does come down to you know terroir sort of um, although we don't grow the stuff here it's part of this like this whole 160 plus year old building has just some terroir in it that you know that affects the flavors and it has it has a Boston accent would you say really yeah, <laughs> all of our whiskey has a Boston accent. So do I after a couple of glasses of whiskey. <laughs> anyway, I just think that, uh, I, I think it's an elevated consumer at this moment, but you know, look, let's look at, let, let's look at Johnny Walker and Dewar's. You know, again, I grew up around those. My father was a big whiskey drinker. I wonder where I got it from. And those probably still are the two best selling brands in the world. They're blended malts. We can do that too. And so that's what we're, our foray into next is, is really expanding our malt range. Um, you know, rye has been really great and I love rye and we're doing well with it. There's a lot of rye in the market. There's a lot of American rye and there'll be a lot of malt whiskeys. And I think being part of that category that's growing and emerging is very exciting. And a lot of us that are doing it have tasting rooms where we can educate people. And, and the pandemic, I mean, you know, has helped that sort of um, 
education process. I, I'm on Zoom. I have another one today. I, I'm on them every day, almost virtual tastings for people. They want to learn about what we're doing. And I've always felt that, you know, knowledge is power and that's just great for everybody. You know, responsible, uh, mindful drinking occasions is where brands like ours are going to fit in. And um, to see, you know, you mentioned the tasting room. You've got a gorgeous space there. Um, it's huge. It's sprawling. I know you were also doing weddings and things there, but obviously the past year has kind of changed that a little bit. Um, you know, so how are, you know, sort of how are you managing, you know, not welcoming the same number of people into the space as you were? Because it really is, I mean, I, I absolutely love it. It's, it's sprawling. And I think it actually is very conducive to social distancing because you can be very, very spread out in there. Yeah, you know, I, I've been saying this a lot these days, which is the tasting room is the tail. The dog is really producing high quality whiskey that create an emotional connection with the people who seek it out and find it and, and market it outside of my four walls here or however many walls we have here because I can't scale Boston Harbor Dist Distillery, but I can scale the whiskey. And I love that coming from the beer business. I'm in heaven. It takes a long time to get it in the bottle, but once it's in the bottle, you know it's gonna taste like that when you finally get that customer to buy it. And I love that. And we can, you know, our whiskeys can travel. Beer does not travel well and it's a local business. So the local aspect, you know, I actually talked to some of the ACSA people about it too. It's like, it's important to be part of your community, but to buy this just because it's local isn't the right reason. It has to be quality. It has to be price right. The package has to be appealing to you. And oh, by the way, we're local. Oh, and by the way, it's a minority owned company. That matters to some people, but that's not the reason why people should drink my whiskey. It really starts with that point of difference that we were just talking about and the quality in the bottle and do they think it's value and is it worthwhile. Um, so my tasting room, what, I, what it is excellent for is this education and being in Boston, which is, you know, center of education throughout the world. And I'm sure that's growing and changing other places, but I'm pretty proud of what we have here in Boston from that. I wanted it to be about this place to be about education. So it was really more of a tour center. And then uh, we, the laws changed a couple of years into it because before I could only give out little tastes and now we can make cocktails. Um, and I love the gathering place. And I, I love that in the experience that it's quintessentially Boston and we keep the, the history and the stories inside of every bottle. And we, we talk about it all day long and people bring their friends. And when people come through Boston, they seek us out because they want to learn about it. So that's why I did it. The pandemic, of course, has just knocked us all on our heels. It's not been kind to the, to our industry or lots of, people in the hospitality industry, but it did give us a chance to really hone our craft and figure out, you know, what's important and going forward, how do we, we put the best experience inside the bottle too. So um, I'm glad that we're sort of reopening again. Um, for me, I didn't start this to have to manage bartenders and <laughs> 
food and you know all that people coming in and they're mad because the, their reservation wasn't ready i you know that's i sell the restaurants that do that and they do it really well but it's really from a from an experiential perspective, you know, marketing and cash flow, of course, it goes from the back room to the front room. We don't need the three, four tier system. That helps a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad for many reasons that we're coming back to people, you know, there's some confidence building and Wednesday is St. Patrick's Day and in Boston, that's the unofficial first day of spring and people just, have a different mindset after the daylight savings is here and the weather's changing. So it's all good. It's all good. Um, so let me ask, um, as far as when you were getting into the distilling business, um, how did the reality match up with your expectations and what have you learned from that process? <laughs> oh. Uh, I learned, a, you know, too numerous to count. I'm learning every day. Um, I, I really didn't realize it would be this hard, I'll be honest with you. And, and, and I started a couple of beer companies, one of them wildly successful. Um, I sold all my stock before, so that I need to work. Um, it's, uh, I learned a lot. And it, you know, most entrepreneurial businesses, they say that it takes twice as long and it costs twice as much. Well, in the whiskey business, I'd say it takes four times as long and costs four times as much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, being underfunded going into it, it, it's okay because it makes you realize what, where you need to really put the hard-earned dollars that you're making. And for me, it's all inside those barrels because there's nothing, you know, I, you know, maybe gold is more valuable, but you know, the way that that whiskey works and that it increases with, you know, value with age is pretty exciting. So you really have to have a long vision. And I think personally, at least being in, an urban distiller, in Boston and there's a lot of tough places. I was talking to Pauletto the other day on Clubhouse and he's like, you know, how come I haven't seen your stuff more places? You know, I thought you were gonna come in and kick our ass. Well, just wait. <laughs> I don't wanna kick his ass because we need to do this together. You know, the tide, when the tide comes in, all the boats rise. But I was like, Boston's a really tough place. He's so is Chicago and he's right. But I got, I had the benefit of marketing Sam Adams all over the country. and. This, this place, Boston's tough. And, and really part of the toughness, it's really the first stop from, uh, from the big guys in Europe, you know, Diageo, Pinot Ricard. I mean, we're, we're competing, well, we all are competing with the best marketers in the world. And Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, I mean, really? What's better than that, right? But um, so, you know, that's, that's the level of playing field that we're in. And, and their first stop is Boston. And Boston's a very brand loyal place. And, you know, people love their McAllen and, you know, their Jameson and uh, that is what they drink. And uh, not to mention the bourbons, of course, but I'm just talking about the European stuff. So that's what's made it more difficult. And, uh, but it takes time. And I, I, think, I think it's probably more like eight to 10 years to start 
to really build a brand that you can then expand and probably that much in dollars as well at a minimum <laughs> so take time and i learned you know every day it's a hard fought learning experience but it's good and it's good so which of your products are you kicking back with at the end of the day uh, well it depends on the day it's kind of like you know what's your favorite child <laughs> um well i'm just having a little bit not a lot I had, a, I had a little bit of the rye on the rocks before because I wanted a cold drink, but now that I've had a cold drink, just a little bit of whiskey. And I just love it because you can, like I said, if sometimes it's, I pour myself a glass of water and I, I put a little of my chocolate malt, my, my single malt in there just to give me that flavor, water thing. But usually I start this way and then perhaps get a little lighter throughout the day. But my best days here are always, in the morning when my distiller meets me with a tray of saying, let's taste through some barrels. Let's taste through some barrels. So we're making, um, you know, whiskey is really our focus, but we're also uh, making some really beautiful uh, New England style rum called Lollies, which was the, the next entrepreneur that had commerce here. It was with uh, shipbuilders and they built minesweepers for World War II in this building. And we just came out with a gin um, last summer during the pandemic. So I'm excited to get that out there. It's a beautiful, beautiful gin. Uh, wheat base with whole oranges and, and orris root and angelica root and some coriander. Beautiful. Um, so that's good. That's a nice summer sipper. Uh, usually, and then we have our confectionery line, which is our maple cream and our coffee liqueur which uh, is great for like brunch, beautiful. Or any coffee in the morning, we have it right next to the core. I mean, it's a perfect balance between cream and sugar, so we just, that works. And um, I do distill some Sam Adams beer. That's really fun to have as a flight because mm. you get to really taste the nuances. And then uh, we, do, we did uh, just put a couple of our Putnam Old Fashioned and an espresso martini in, in a bottle. So we're starting to market that as well in the RTD world. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exciting. I'm glad to hear you're doing a gin now because I think that um, gin is kind of poised to have its moment here finally. I'll show it to you so you see it. Yeah. Um, I agree. You know why? Because whiskey distilleries all over do gin. Like if oh, yeah. they're not you need a white spirit, it's gin. We're not doing vodka. Right. <laughs> so we do gin because you can put some flavor into gin. Yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great time to be a consumer. There's so much choice and there's more happening every day. And it's a great time to be a distiller. That's our program for today. Thanks again to Rhonda Coleman for joining us. You can learn more about the distillery at bostonharbordistillery.com. And you can find Rhonda on Twitter. She's at Rhonda Coleman. And if you're still listening, I'm assuming that means you're enjoying the show. If that's the case, could you do us a quick favor and please take a minute or two to leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts? We'd be incredibly grateful. We'll be back in a few weeks with Dan Garrison of Garrison Brothers Distillery. Until then... 
Thanks for listening, and cheers.